you remember what it was like being a kid? Anyone? For some of you, that was not very long ago, right? This summer, we went to Branson and Silver Dollar City with our, with our children, and you know, the big rides, you have to be 48 inches tall to ride. Uh, our oldest, Avery, is just a few inches underneath that. You know, so we'd go up to a ride, and oh, she can't get in. We'd go to another one, same result. And as I thought about this, you know, much of life is about waiting to get in, right? To be tall enough, to be old enough, smart enough, successful enough. But in our passage today, Jesus flips the ways of the world upside down and says, you don't have to be this tall to get in, you need to be this small to get in. And in a world of people striving to ascend towards greatness, a greatness found in success, fame, gaining access, special rights and privileges, opportunities, Jesus says, the way of greatness in my kingdom isn't an ascent, but it's a descent. And this morning we're going to see that. That the greatness in, that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is a descent. The magnitude of Jesus' words are extreme. I mean, for Jesus, getting this right is literally a matter of life and death. And our passage today, it contains some of the most severe warnings Jesus ever gives. Severe warnings and severe consequences Jesus ever gives. Because this truth is essential. We've been walking through the book of Matthew together now. Uh, and, and last week we learned about the cross and how the cross comes before the crown. That denying yourself comes before glory. Following the heels of that passage, Jesus begins to flesh out what this looks like. And specifically here, how it impacts the way we live and treat one another. So this morning, as we work through the passage, we'll observe a few things. We're going to observe the question of greatness, the picture of greatness, the way of greatness, and then lastly, the reason for it. The question, the picture, the way, and then the reason. So let's jump in now with the question of greatness. And in chapter 18, verse 1, right, the disciples ask the question, right, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And English doesn't quite highlight this, but he really asks, who then, who then is the greatest? I mean, they're actually prompted to ask this question based on something that just happened. So if we want to think more well about this question, let's look back a few verses. You know, starting in chapter 17, 22, Jesus repeats a prediction he's already made about his death and his resurrection. And then in verse 24, the scene moves to Capernaum, which is this fishing town on the north of the Sea of Galilee. And here, Jesus is accused of not paying the two drachma tax. Now, this tax, it was just a very common yearly charge for the temple in Jerusalem. It paid for just kind of the general expenses, day-to-day stuff for the temple. And, and Peter, right, is the one who's confronted with the question about whether Jesus pays the tax, to which he says, yeah. But then it's like he has to run back to the house to, to make sure and confirm with Jesus. And as soon as Peter steps through the doors of the house, Jesus poses a hypothetical question. It's like before he can get a word out, Jesus has a question for him about whether kings of the earth take taxes from sons or from others. What Jesus is driving at here is that because he, and apparently Peter, are sons of the king of God, then they are free and not required to pay the tax. But, but then something surprising happens 
Jesus tells Peter, you know what, go ahead and pay it. Go ahead and pay it. After you, you know, get a coin from a fish's mouth. (laughs) And here's the reason he gives. Here's the reason. So that you do not offend them. So that you don't offend them. The word offend here, it means to cause a stumbling block. And it's, it's used not only here, but six more times in the rest of our passage to this morning. There, it's going to be translated as a temptation, a stumbling block, or a cause to sin, causing someone to stumble. And this concept really ties our passage together because the question of greatness is also a question about whether you'll cause others to stumble. What does Jesus mean by causing an offense? As one commentator says, metaphorically, a stumbling block is something we do or say that makes it harder for people to believe us or to follow us. Specifically, it's something we do or say that makes it more difficult for people to believe the gospel. More difficult for people to believe the gospel. Now, you might think, I, listen, I get not going out of your way to offend others, but what's really the big deal with offending people if you're just telling the truth, right? I'm just speaking the truth. I, I, and honestly, several other times, Jesus has no problem with offending others. Uh, we, a, a few weeks back, we were in chapter 15. Jesus critiques how the Pharisees and the scribes have elevated tradition, right? And he says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out. And the disciples come to him saying, Jesus, you offended the Pharisees with your words. It's the same language. Jesus responds, <laughs> so he's not too concerned about it. And he seems to even just add more offense, right? He calls them trees not planted by God. He calls them blind guides. Jesus is not scared of giving an offense. And if we're honest, we, we kind of prefer the offensive Jesus. <laughs> we like the Jesus that stands up to the establishment It meshes with a lot of our other cultural values. And this does show that there are times when a disciple must take a stand and make decisions that will rub others the wrong way. That's absolutely true. But sometimes, disciples need to choose not to cause an offense even if they know they're right. Even if they know they're right. But of course, the question then is, how do you know when to do what? So why did Jesus here choose not to cause an offense? And what might it mean to us? We could point to a lot of things, really. I mean, timing for one, right? The temple wasn't going to be around for too much longer, so it's not that important. Plus, Jesus has really never cared that much about money. So he's like, fine, pay it. But I think the most important, one of the more significant reasons, and that's then sort of replicated throughout the rest of our passage, is revealed when we ask the question, what's at stake? What's not at stake is Jesus isn't compromising truth or the well-being of others. According to Jesus, the only thing at stake are his own rights and freedoms. And Jesus has this weird habit of giving up his rights and freedoms for the sake of others. Remember what Jesus said. As the son of the king, he was free He was free from paying this tax. And yet he did it anyway. At the heart of this story 
we see that Jesus chooses to give up his rights and his freedoms so as not to offend people, to cause a stumbling block. There was something about this event that might have needlessly caused others not to believe in him, and so it wasn't worth fighting about. And yet we have to think, how easy is it for us to fight and demand what we believe we're owed? But, what I, but the thing I want us to recognize is that at the core of this tendency is to believe that we have some special status, a belief that we're better, greater in some way than others. The whole Temple Tech episode is about status and rights and privileges, but it's really about greatness. And so the disciples raised the question to Jesus. Verse 1 literally says, in that hour, in that hour they came to Jesus. They've just heard Jesus talk about being a son of the king, not having to pay taxes. And so they want to know, when the kingdom comes, when the kingdom of heaven comes, who's the greatest? And it's not some abstract statement about the nature of greatness, but he really wants to know, what are the new social categories for this kingdom? Who's on top? And what do I have to do to get there? Their question of greatness is an attempt, right? It's an attempt to compare to one another. In in another gospel account, we find that this question was raised because the disciples were, were fighting with one another and debating who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it so easy to compare ourselves with others and to think that that gives some certain status or right? But as we'll see, this comparison and quest for greatness not only robs you of life, even more it creates a stumbling block for others. And so, starting in verse 2, Jesus answers their question about greatness in the kingdom with a picture of greatness. We now want to look at, we now want to talk about the picture of greatness. Notice Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about greatness, right? I mean, it's not really something Christians strive for. You shouldn't pursue greatness. He doesn't say any of that. He wants them, actually, to pursue greatness. But he's going to redefine what kingdom greatness looks like. Rather than ascending over others, kingdom greatness is a descent. And so he he beckons, he calls a child to come and stand in their midst and says, here, here's a picture of greatness. Kingdom greatness is seen in childlike humility. Kingdom greatness is seen in childlike humility. I mean, notice how this passage builds. In verse 3, Jesus says that if they don't turn and become like a child, they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about becoming a Christian, right? The necessity of conversion. He says they need to turn from their own personal ascent and become like a dependent child just to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the greatest in this kingdom will humble himself like a child. But why children? I mean, surely there there are all sorts of heroes they could have pointed to, people who had qualities of faith, courage, might, success. All these things are fine. They're, They're good. But Jesus places a child in their midst. So we have to ask, why is a child such an apt picture of greatness? Uh, A while back I was in the Aldi grocery store, and uh, there there were these three little kids who literally 
whined for ice cream through the entire store. And these three kids may or may not have been hanging on my cart, but... Is this the sort of character of childhood that Jesus is talking about? No, Jesus isn't talking about childishness. To understand this passage, we actually need to consider a little bit more how children were regarded in in their own day, in the first century world. In our culture, children are revered, right? I mean, we watch and we chronicle everything. I mean, every word, every funny expression. We have journals of oddly colored poop. Everything is chronicled. But it wasn't this way in the first century world. Children were not admired or revered. They were the bottom of the social ladder. They were weak. They were marginalized. They had little to no rights. They couldn't advance their own standing. They weren't included in decisions or discussions. In this day, being a child meant being helpless with no voice or standing in the world. And while children today may have some of those, still some of that standing, I wonder, I wonder if Jesus would still place a child in our midst or if he might place someone else. Someone else who's marginalized in our society. Because Jesus is trying to point out the low status and dependency of a child. And he wants his disciples to be like that. That is greatness. Here's a picture of greatness. But this is unlike the pursuit of greatness in our world, right? I mean, who would the world place in our midst and say, here's a picture of greatness, pursue it? Think of every leadership book you've ever read. (laughs) Every leadership book you've ever read. A person who's achieved greatness, meant to be modeled after. The CEOs who've struggled and fought for success are self-made the celebrities or the athletes who entertain and influence, the politicians who know the right people and have political power. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be humble like a child? We're going to look at some of the practices that really tie into this in the next, but first I want us to consider two quick things. Two quick things. First, becoming like a child means not pursuing the honor and status of this world means not pursuing the honor and status of this world. It's so tempting, isn't it? Friends, it's so tempting to strive for honor, status, and power. That's how you move ahead in the world. You have to know the right people, trade the right favors, you have to self-promote. But Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to check out of this pursuit of honor and status and power. Of course, Having status is not a bad thing, right? Paul was a Roman citizen. That is a status. He didn't give that up. He even used it, but he didn't flaunt it. Ambition, too, isn't wrong as long as it's ambition-oriented in the right way. I mean, here's just a quick diagnostic for ambition. I'm sure we have a lot of ambitious people here. Does your ambition cause you to take credit for your own status, power, and honor? Does your ambition cause you to look down on others? If so, your ambition might be a little off track. Instead, be ambitious to do good work and create value in the world without seeking honor. 
to lift others up and not yourself, as we'll see in the next section. You were created to do good works, to contribute. But these good works are not for your own glory, but for the God who made you. As we know, God will lift up those who don't seek status, but will bring low those who think they deserve the best. Second, be dependent on God. This is maybe key to the first point, uh, but I want to mention it on its own. You know, remember in chapter 17 and that weird episode with the fish and the coin? (laughs) While Jesus gave up his rights for others, God provided all that he needed. God provided all that he needed. I mean, this was to show that there is nothing to fear in being a sacrifice because God will provide all that you need. It's sort of like when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the ones who take a posture of humility, of unworthiness, and recognize all of life as a gift, a life of total dependence on someone else. That's the status of a child, a life of dependence. The world may see greatness as a struggle a struggle for gaining wealth, power, and honor, comparing ourselves to one another, trying to outdo one another. But Jesus sees greatness in a life, not pursuing status, but in full dependence. The kingdom of heaven is for those who recognize their dependence on God and cling to him. So what are some of the ways and practices of this greatness? We now want to look at the way of greatness. Let's look at verses 5 through 9 and see this. Here we'll learn that the way of kingdom greatness is found in how we treat ourselves and others. First, how we treat ourselves. In verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever receives one of these, one such child receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a, mil- a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Notice how there's a change, right, in the language from child in verse 5 to little ones who believe in me. And he sort of continues that little ones throughout. Jesus is talking about children still, but he's broadening the category to include any of the marginalized, but specifically the marginalized who believe in him, any of the marginalized within the community of the church. And it's a dramatic scene, a great millstone it's almost cartoonish. A great millstone, it was so, it's such a massive stone. This wasn't the, like the ones you would use to grind yourself, but it required a donkey to turn it. And it's meant to highlight that how we treat the littlest is of the utmost importance. In fact, humility has always been considered the foundation of our Christian life together. Because at its heart, it's anti-comparison. For those who seek honor, status, and power in the world, according to the world's way, they prefer to welcome those who can help them ascend, or who are at least at the same status level. I mean, it's like when you walk into a room, and you scan the room to see who you're going to talk with, and you're like, I'm not talking to that person, not talking to that person, I mean, who do you go towards? Maybe people of the same social standing. Maybe you seek out those with more standing than you have. 
as a way to build up your own? Jesus says, not so in my kingdom. Those who are great welcome the children and the marginalized in our society. It's how Jesus himself acts. In chapter 19, he welcomes the little children. He lays hands on them. He blesses them. Welcoming children and the marginalized in our society, it means, it means sharing space and time with them. Notice it's not just about caring for their well-being, but caring for their company. It means showing compassion and kindness towards them. It means elevating them, even if it means lowering yourself. Welcoming the marginalized is an active way of checking out of the status game altogether. How do you humble yourself like a child? The answer is welcome. Welcome the child and the marginalized in your society. The mark of true greatness is that you don't filter these people out when you walk into a room, but that you welcome them genuinely. And it's a diagnostic for our own spiritual, our own spiritual life. One commentator writes, what we do with our children and what we do to them is a worryingly accurate indication of what we think about the world, God, and ourselves. I might add, not just children, but any of those who don't have status according to the world's standards. So what might this mean for us in our time? Pretty basically, it means to welcome children, (laughs) your own or others, and to welcome those in our church family who are unlike yourself. I've been a pastor here for over three years now. But one of the first things that, that was so striking to Sarah Beth and myself when we first arrived had to do with this church's commitment to children. Particularly, I was thinking with regard to foster care. Now, I know this is not the only way to welcome children. We welcome children in the worship service. We welcome children within children's ministries a whole host of ways. But, but this is a significant one. It's not for everyone but it is something that we should celebrate and support within our community. Many of you here have welcomed children into your homes and cared for them. Others have come alongside these families to support them. And when I think of the vulnerable in our society, those little ones without a safe place to lay their head, this is deeply important. Another distinctive is is care for the unborn. Uh, Larry Hurtado identifies this as one of the main distinctives of early Christians. I mean, in the early church, in the early centuries at least, uh, uh, the main abortive practice was to, to take a newly born child out to the trash heap and just leave them exposed. And yet Christians would regularly go, gather those children, and raise them as their own. One of the ways that we welcome children is to advocate for the vulnerable and voiceless unborn. It's as important now as it, ever, as it has ever been. But of course, it's not just children. There are all sorts of people within our church community from all walks of life, some who have worldly status and access and others who don't. Who would Jesus tell you to care for and to welcome? And so my challenge for you is just to reflect on who you hang out with. Who do you welcome into your home? Do you invite people over for your benefit and advancement or for theirs? 
Now, second, this kingdom greatness is not only found in how we treat others, but how we treat ourselves. And this other piece I think Jesus is highlighting in this passage is that kingdom greatness is costly. Kingdom greatness is costly. The main warning we find in verse 6 and 7, it's, it's not to cause one of these little ones to sin or stumble. Well, how are they causing them to sin or stumble? I mean, it likely has to do with verse 10 and the command not to despise or look down on them. I mean, to look down on someone is to say, I'm great and you're not. And doing this causes a little one to doubt the truth and work of Jesus. Then in verses 8 and 9, Jesus directs his disciples to ruthlessly eliminate the things that cause them to sin, recalling some of his words uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. It's another dramatic scene where they're instructed to cut off hands, feet, and eyes if they cause them to sin because it's better to be maimed and enter life than to suffer in hell. Part of turning to become like a child is to eliminate the things in our life that trip us up, that cause us to stumble. And while I think this, this can apply to sin in general, I think Jesus was particularly pointing to the sin of pride. The things that cause you to compare yourself with others. To think you're better, more worthy, more righteous than others within the church family. He's talking about cutting off the hand that keeps us from serving the least of these. Severing the foot that refuses to spend time with others. Digging out the eye that ignores those who don't look like you, talk like you, don't contribute to your advancement. This isn't just about your entry into life, but others too. Because when you fail to humble yourself, you not only trip yourself up, but others as well. This is how Pastor Josh condensed it. And I love those words. Yet to cut out the things that lead to pride in your life is costly. What are the things that cause you to compare yourself with others and to even place yourself above others? Because you might need to cut it out. Not only for your good, but for others. Remember Jesus' actions when it came to the tax collection? We find that he, that this was really an object lesson for the teaching that was to come. Jesus' own status and rights meant that he didn't have to pay the tax. He was better than those that paid it, than the collectors that were asking for it. But he does it anyway. So often at the core of the costly greatness is a sacrifice of our own things, rights, privileges, whatever you want to call it. Paul picks up this same theme in Romans, right, when he talks about eating food considered unclean. His conclusion is this, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. But it's costly. It's hard. It sometimes feels like losing a hand or an eye. And yet it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom greatness is found in how we treat others and how we treat ourselves. So finally, at the end of our passage, our last section here, 
in verse 10 and following, Jesus gives the reason. The reason for everything he's just said. And all the instructions he's really about to give. Why should we care and protect the little ones? Why should we be willing to sacrifice some freedom we might, or right that we might have? Why should we pursue this humility? Because God watchfully cares for every believer, especially the little ones. Jesus says not to despise or think down on these little ones because their angels or messengers always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, many have, have seen this as a, as a justification for guardian angels, and it's possible. Uh, there's not a lot of other uh, uh, scriptural evidence for that, but it's possible. Uh, it might just be more general about angels who advocate for all little ones, not necessarily specific to every individual. Nonetheless, the point is that the little ones have access before the Father, that they are not forgotten. They are not forgotten, they are not minimized, but they have access. Jesus then continues this theme by telling a simple parable, a simple parable about a sheep and a shepherd, which is really a story about God and his people. And, you know, in reality, if we, if we become like a child and enter his kingdom, then in some ways every believer is a little one. To be welcomed into God's house, you don't have to be wealthy, you don't have to be successful enough, you don't have to have it all put together. You simply have to become like a child before our good shepherd. That's it. And this good shepherd watchfully cares for every sheep. The farmer in this story, he has a hundred sheep. A hundred sheep. It might seem like you have enough to lose one here or there. Enough that it's not going to, you know, hurt your bottom line. But God is the kind of shepherd who would leave the 99 to go find the one. How does he do it? How did God go after the sheep? Philippians 2 tells us, the famous hymn of the early church, starting in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, greatness in the kingdom is a descent because the greatest one who ever lived descended to be with us. Greatness in the kingdom is a descent because the greatest one who ever lived descended to be with us. He took on the likeness of a slave. He suffered death on a cross in order to bring each of us into the glory and greatness of eternal life with God the Father, the Good Shepherd. Do you know how precious you are 
before God the Father, how precious you are. He watchfully cares for every believer. It doesn't matter if you make six figures or if you barely make ends meet. It doesn't matter if you're old or young, skilled or not, married or single. God watchfully cares for every one of his little children because he sent his own child, the divine son, to make sure of it. And he invites each of us to turn, become like a child, his child, fully dependent on him. And to be great in this kingdom is to humble yourself like a child, checking out of the status game of the world. It's not for you. It doesn't advance you. It brings you down welcoming into our homes and our lives children and those without status in the world. People are not just for your own advancement. They're not commodities. God cares for them, and so each of us should care for the lowest in our community. Loving them, honoring them, spending time with them, treating them as people. And, then, and in so doing, we ruthlessly eliminate the pride that causes us and others to stumble. Ruthlessly eliminating that pride. And it's hard, it's costly, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Greatness in the kingdom is a descent because the greatest one who ever lived descended to be with us. Would you pray with me? Lord, our good shepherd, you know our hearts. You know when we humble ourselves and when we puff ourselves up. May we go from this place ruthlessly eliminating the pride in our heart that we may lift up others around us. Not giving in to the comparison game, the quest for greatness, but knowing that greatness is found in humbling ourselves like a child. Give us eyes to see the needy around us. Give us feet to go into the places others avoid. Give us hands to serve our church family. God, thank you for watchfully caring for each of us like a good shepherd among his sheep. In Christ I pray, amen.